Welcome to Catholic Confessions. Hi, this is Edith and Nick here with you again. This is part two of our discussion on how does Jesus' dying save us. And we have looked at three theories of atonement in part one of this podcast, namely the ransom theory, satisfaction and penal substitution theories. We will discuss three more theories today and we're going to start with something that is particularly relevant to Easter. You will find maybe some of the ideas more familiar is very often preached and also emphasized. The idea that through his death and resurrection, Jesus has claimed victory over sin and death, that he has conquered sin and death. So I'm sure you we hear that a lot. Uh, yes, of course. In, uh, in St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, Paul boldly proclaims, O death, where is thy sting? O death, where is thy victory? In that statement, you can see the victorious champion model coming to the fore when we discuss uh, the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, if Jesus simply died, then we can't really say he was victorious. He was a tragic hero, to be sure, but uh, we can't say that he actually won. It's because he rose from the dead that Christians can say that he has won. Uh, there is a popular slogan, love wins. The resurrection of Jesus shows that love is stronger than death. Love is stronger than sin. And that in our own lives, we can live in a loving way, in a vulnerable way, although we may be like Jesus, uh, persecuted and crucified. But love nevertheless will win in the end. And insofar as the resurrection uh, sheds light on the fragility of love, encourages people to continue to love in spite of everything, it is a powerful message. Mm. We move on to another theory, okay, which is also something that we come across a lot and also definitely touches on the theme of um, love wins in a sense that is called the moral influence theory. So it's something that has always been around. It's the idea that Christ's life and suffering was and death was primarily targeted at us in a way to serve as a moral example to inspire us to change our hearts and our lives. Yes, um, in a way, Christ as a moral exemplar would be in a way no, no different from many famous religious leaders. Uh, nevertheless, it's uh, valid. Christ showed us how to live by his life and teaching. Christ showed us how to die by his death. So his moral example works in two ways. The w- uh, how he forgave his enemies, that is of course uh, something inspiring. And uh, that of course can be possibly to, to help people to understand the importance of for- forgiving our enemies. And also the importance of uh, following the Father's will, even up to the bitter end. On the cross, Jesus prayed Psalm 22. It's the psalm starts off with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is of course a, psalm, a cry of desolation by somebody who at this point in time doesn't feel that God is close to him. Of course, if you, if you look at the text very carefully, Jesus never addresses God as my God. He always calls him Abba, Father. Uh, but in this case, he uses a more distant pronoun, my God, my God, to show that Jesus himself experiences the desolation when we feel abandoned by our enemies, that it is acceptable 
to feel angry and disappointed at God. The psalm, of course, ends with hope, uh, belief that God will ultimately vindicate. Nevertheless, uh, his way of dying, there are a number of things for us to consider. On Good Friday, uh, one popular devotional practice is to meditate on the seven last words of Jesus. And uh, each of the words would be uh, for our moral edification. So Jesus as moral example would be relatively similar to that of the great religious leaders of the world, but that does not nevertheless invalidate his moral example. Would you say that, okay, although this theory of moral influence is something that is uh, very relatable, something that we can easily understand right, and be inspired by, would you say that it in a way trivializes um, the nature of Jesus' death on the cross in that sense? Because it doesn't really emphasize of his death, but really a lot on his life, his morality and his teachings. I think the key thing to note is that Jesus is a moral exemplar, but he is not only a moral exemplar. So he is this and much more because his death actually changes something in the human being's relationship with God. That's why the other theories, the satisfaction theory, victorious champion and so on, will have to be likewise preached. If not, Jesus would be just simply another uh, religious figure. So the death of a particular religious figure would probably be inspiring to his followers, but doesn't actually change the followers' relationship with God. Jesus, on the other hand, because he is God and man, his death, while also being in a way an example for his followers, changes the, the relationship between God and humanity. Yeah, we will talk a bit more about this um, idea of adopting a more holistic perspective of these theories um, later on. Okay, but just final theory that we're going to touch on, something called scapegoat theory. Okay, we can say that it is the most recent of the um, theories to have emerged. Sure. Uh, the scapegoat theory is actually proposed by a French anthropologist called René Girard. René Girard argues that in cultures, uh, we will see the following dynamics. Two groups of people not getting along with each other because they desire something common. He calls it mimetic desire. That means I imitate you and then because of that, conflict occurs. How is conflict resolved? When these two groups of people uh, find a common enemy, a scapegoat, and then they, they ascribe the reason for their conflict to this particular scapegoat and then the scapegoat is often killed or driven out of the community and peace will ensue for a period of time. René Girard argues that, of course, the scapegoat is often innocent, but unfortunately, this is how societies operate. In the Gospels, on the other hand, the Gospels powerful for René Girard because it unmasks the scapegoat mechanism in every society. If you read Luke's Gospel, Luke's Gospel was read out at Palm Sunday this year. It talks about Pilate and Herod were once enemies and now they were friends. Why were they friends? They now had a common enemy. They both believed that the chief priests were bothersome people sending Jesus to them for their judgment. Then they also both believed that Jesus was innocent but nevertheless uh, politically expedient to put away for their purposes. So Jesus becomes a scapegoat so that Pilate and Herod becomes friends. So that is one example. 
if we understand the scapegoat dynamism, we can understand it perhaps in our today everyday context. Sometimes you may hear of uh, office politics and we may say to ourselves, if only person X disappears from the office, there will be peace. Well, sometimes person X disappears. But when I ask a typical audience, will there be peace in the office? They often laugh and say, uh, no, there will not be peace because there's still other problems. My point is actually quite simple. Uh, sometimes we ascribe to people various problems. If only they disappear, things will be peace. But there will not be peace because sin lies even deeper. And the purpose of Good Friday, according to René Girard, is to help us to realize that we ourselves can participate very easily in a scapegoating mechanism. If we were to scapegoat, we might crucify the Son of God. This popular song which we sing at Good Friday, Were you there when they crucified our Lord? If you were to say, I was not there, why is this song so silly? You would have missed the point. The song is asking you, what if you were there? If you were there, would you have crucified the Son of God? Would you be part of the crowd to shout, crucify him? Would you be Pontius Pilate to wash your hands off things? Chances are, you might be. And because of your scapegoating, you will crucify the Son of God. Now ask him for mercy, because on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I think for me, when I first came across this scapegoat theory, it took, it took me a few rounds of reading and rereading to really grasp it because I don't hear it very often, you know, being, being preached, I don't really come across it in my, in my reading. But I think after coming around to the idea, I think it, it really strikes us quite deeply also because every time something bad happens, our first impulse is let's find someone to blame, right? Like, like you said, and some believing that that's going to make things better or make us feel better. But that's just, it's our instinctive approach, unfortunately, but it doesn't achieve anything. It's, it's a wrong approach. And so I, I guess knowing this also informs me to adopt a different perspective. The scapegoat theory doesn't just simply allow us to be spectators in the crucifixion of Jesus because we can be spectators like the woman of Jerusalem weeping for him. The scapegoat theory reminds us that we are not just spectators but active participants of his death. That we are not just simply like the woman of Jerusalem weeping. We ought to, as Jesus says, weep for ourselves because we are participants in this dynamic we are at least prone to participate in this dynamic in our own daily lives. So it unmasks for us uh, the structure of sin which we often unconsciously put ourselves in. And once sin is unmasked, we can then ask for forgiveness. At the Last Supper, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit. And one of the tasks of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world regarding sin. And one way to convict the world regarding sin is to help the world recognize that it is an active participant. Insofar as the scapegoat theory helps people to recognize their role in contributing to sin, the Holy Spirit would be at work. In a way that, that does teach us how to live as followers of Christ, right? As followers of Christ, we recognize that we are sinners, that we can sin, we are scapegoaters, and hence, we are in need of mercy. We are in need of His grace. Okay, thank you. So on that note, we're going to come to a conclusion on, this, on these theories. Okay, now, most of the scriptural references 
we have not really um, spoken about. Okay, for the theories of atonement, it comes from the writings of uh, St. Paul. Okay, but very interestingly, we can actually find a passage in the Old Testament that neatly summarizes these theories. I would argue that Isaiah 53, read during the Good Friday liturgy, summarizes all the models of atonement we spoke about. Isaiah 53 is, of course, part of the suffering servant passages in Isaiah, in which Isaiah portrays uh, the suffering servant, the servant of God, being punished, being mocked, being persecuted, and somehow, because of his suffering, the people of Israel are saved. Uh, Isaiah 53, for example, alludes to the satisfaction theory. The text reads, He was pierced through for our faults, crushed for our sins. On him lies a punishment that brings us peace, and through his wounds we are healed. We see also in the text where it alludes to Jesus as a victorious champion. Isaiah 53 reads, His soul's anguish over, he shall see the light and be content. Hence, I will grant whole hearts for his tribute. He shall divide the spoil with the mighty. Finally, we see Isaiah 53 alluding to the idea of Jesus as the final scapegoat. They gave him a grave with the wicked, a tomb with the rich, though he had done no wrong and there had been no perjury in his mouth. So uh, Isaiah 53 offers uh, the Christian the six models of atonement. It serves as a model of uh, preaching about the death of Jesus in a balanced way. And what's remarkable about Isaiah 53 is that it's in the Old Testament. It is uh, prophesying about Jesus, but then it seems that uh, the prophet was actually present when all these events have taken place. Uh, the book of Isaiah is one of the most read uh, books of the Old Testament in the sacred liturgy. It struck St. Jerome so much that he describes it as the fifth gospel. He says, for example, Isaiah should be called an evangelist rather than a prophet because he describes all the mysteries of Christ and the church so clearly that one would think he is composing a history of what has already happened rather than prophesying what is to come. I think on this note, we can recognize the depth and the breadth of our Christian faith, the depth and the breadth of the mystery of Jesus Christ. Thanks, Nick. Uh, we hope that through this uh, our discussion, this podcast, that you have gained a better understanding of why Jesus died and how his dying saves us. And at some point, you might begin to think that what is the point of knowing all this? Isn't it enough to just have faith and to know that I'm loved by God? Okay, but I beg to differ because uh, for me, like as I was preparing for this podcast and trying to read up about all these theories and to understand them, and when I read scripture, it really helps to helps me to regard scripture with new eyes and to take a more discerning approach in my reading. For example, if I come across a particular verse, I will think about, oh, what, what theory does this verse support and how does this support that? And it helps me to really uh, understand the, the context of scripture a little bit better. I think everybody does uh, theology at some point in time because all of us will be thinking about our faith. Uh, some of us may actually adopt a stance. Uh, I do not want to know this. I just know that Jesus loves me and that's good enough. I do not wish to think about my Christian faith. In some way, that's understandable. Uh, there is a case to be made that we ought not to expose ourselves to unnecessary doubt with regards to matters of faith. However, uh, John Henry Newman, Cardinal John Henry Newman, makes the distinction 
between doubt, which a Christian should never do, and investigation, which a Christian ought to do to deepen his faith. Investigation is not doubt. It is thinking with assent. In other words, you, have, you already accept your faith. You already accept the love of Jesus. You want to think through the implications. So that is actually something to be encouraged. And inevitably, all of us will do so at some point in time. Mm. And if we've gone through, we realize that we only really we only exposed to only one or two models of atonement, right? That we hear doing preaching or doing uh, pastoral activities. So, how should we get a more holistic understanding? One of the reasons why uh, I'm able to uh, have the privilege of delivering this podcast and also giving the talk for the Catholic Theology Network was because this question emerged out of an RCIA context. An inquirer was actually grappling with the idea of Jesus loves you, therefore he died for you. And she asked a question, a very real question, if uh, someone is sentenced to death and he is uh, eventually pardoned by the president, she can accept that. But if the president were to say, you are sentenced to death, but somebody completely innocent dies on your behalf, and that will, that will constitute a sub- sufficient substitution, that seems to her absurd, and God seems to be very sinister. So how can we understand the idea of Jesus' death being salvific and Jesus' death being loving? So uh, I was privileged to be part of the process to assist her in trying to understand uh, what it meant. And I, I wrote an article, actually. It's published in two places uh, in a Q&A format addressing these questions. And well, eventually it became something a bit more developed. And the various theories of atonement will help, actually, in this specific RCIA question. A second thing I note is that preaching on the death of Jesus can be strengthened by understanding the different models of atonement. Uh, well, I've been a Catholic in this Archdiocese for some time, and uh, I do notice, I'm happy to be corrected, but I do notice that uh, in the context of preaching and teaching about the faith, Jesus as a moral exemplar would come to the fore. Jesus uh, has suffered, so therefore you too can suffer in a way which is not hopeless. That is actually very important. That is very central to preaching. I see, for example, uh, many people drawing strength from the verse, Come to me, all you who will labor and are overburdened, and I will give you rest, says the Lord. This verse is uh, even more poignant, especially when we encounter tragedy. So I do not wish to take away from the fact that Jesus as a moral example, Jesus as a comforter, uh, is something which is uh, very much preached in our diocese, and uh, rightfully so. I also do not wish to take away from the fact that if you, if you look at uh, the testimonies from the Office of Young People, OYP, you will hear, for example, many young people saying that they have experienced a lot of hurt in their life. They have uh, imbibed false identities, often driven by um, ideas of what it means to be successful in a so-called meritocratic Singapore and how they reclaim their identities as the beloved in Christ. They are now a child of God. Jesus loves them no matter what. I do not wish to detract from this uh, very powerful message of uh, reclaiming your identity in spite of hurts. These are essential part of the gospel message. But the purpose of me doing this is to offer perhaps a third path in our preaching about Jesus and our part preaching about evangelization. 
the need to take sin seriously. As St. Anselm says, you have not considered the weight of sin. And preaching about the atonement in terms of the satisfaction theory can help people to recognize the weight of sin, that we need to take sin seriously, that it is through the scapegoat theory we recognize that we are very complicit in sinning and that our sin can end up killing the Son of God. When Once we recognize that we are sinners, that we are participants in structures of sin, then we recognize a need for a saviour. I think these two models of the atonement can be complemented with what other other things the Archdiocese is already doing. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you also for joining us. And we, we hope that um, through this podcast that uh, you have deepened your understanding of this question, how does Jesus' dying save us to some extent? And that this will trigger an interest to explore uh, more of Jesus's atoning work and also to question your existing uh, preconceptions. Thank you and God bless. For more confessions, do check out our website and Facebook page.